Welcome everyone to episode 94, Unlimited Blood. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm good. I'm heating up, and it's not just because there is this heat wave on the East Coast right now while we're taping, but it's because my former mentor and a genius and my friend, Raphael, too, they're, they're coming on. They're going to tell us about this unlimited blood thing today. I'm psyched up. I love the blood. You know my thing about the blood. It's twisted and sick. <laughs> but you do love the blood. And how cool to be able to talk with your mentor. I'm going to get a little little taste of your history. It's pretty awesome. I don't awesome. want to get into that. I don't think we should get personal. All right, Kiki? Okay. Can we just keep it professional? I'm a little nervous. He's kind of a, uh, he's, you know, geniuses are always a little mercurial. And yeah. we're going we're gonna to see that firsthand. All and right. hopefully we get the warmer end of that. You know what I'm saying? And hopefully we get a little taste of that genius in this podcast. All right, everyone, let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you'll also find all of our past episodes and other great resources and of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. New episodes will be automatically downloaded to your phone. We have a really, really, really great show today, and we're going to discuss the latest science and stem cell news, and we will be interviewing Shaheen Rafi and Raphael Lees about their work into potentially unlimited blood cell supplies. Not potentially, Kiki, not potentially. Yeah, it's real. It's, it's happening. Yes. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yes, yes. I just want to say a couple words to our listeners. I want to remind you guys about Connexon's, one of their original newsletters, Mesenchymal Cell News, covering both in vivo, in vitro research. Mesenchymal Cell News keeps subscribers current with the latest publications, industry, and policy news, as well as jobs and events related to MSC research. Join more than 4,000 subscribers and almost 3,000 Twitter followers for free at www.mesenchymalcellnews.com. All right, Kiki, can you kick it off with some general science news, please? You know I can. Oh, but we're going to kick it off with a really terrible, terrible kickoff. On June 1st, President Donald Trump announced that the United States is going to leave the Paris Climate Accord. Yay. That's great news. Meanwhile, it's 100,000 degrees on the East Coast. Good choice, Trump. Yeah. Put another one on your, on your list. Yeah. So in signing the 2015 Paris Agreement, the United States, along with 194 other countries, there were only two countries that did not sign this accord and one of them was because they wanted it to be better. They thought that it could have done better. And the other is they're basically in the middle of civil war and strife. So <sighs> I give them an out. But 194 other countries pledged to curb green, greenhouse gas emissions to combat global warming. Trump, he has called climate change a hoax, despite overwhelming scientific evidence to the contrary. Trump promised during his campaign that he would withdraw from the Paris Accord. He said 
The agreement is a massive redistribution of the United States' wealth to other countries. As of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens it imposes on our country. So this includes making further payments to the Green Climate Fund, which was set up to help developing countries battle and cope with climate change, because they need a little help doing that. The United States has already paid $1 billion of the $3 billion it pledged to fund, so at least we've done something there. And Trump did leave the door open to re-entering the accord under revised terms or creating an entirely new climate agreement. One of the pieces of positive news here is that this exit doesn't actually take place for another uh, several years. This is it, w- it was kind of a, it's, he's grandstanding, making a scene, making a statement. But unless we do something in the meantime, this will definitely go through. And, and hey, in the middle of all this good news, when you're in the middle of your heat wave, you know, we, we like plants around, right? And we think about, oh, the plants are great. They're going to clean the air and make the air better. Yeah, that's good. Nope. Nope. No! May 17th, Environmental Science and Technology, there's a report that during heat waves, city trees help to boost air pollution levels. When the temperatures go up, as much as 60% of ground-level ozone is created with the help of chemicals that get emitted by urban shrubbery. Robert Young, an urban planning expert at the University of Texas at Austin, he wasn't involved in this study, said, while the findings seem counterintuitive, everything has multiple effects. He cautions that programs focused on planting trees shouldn't necessarily stop. He says instead more stringent measures are needed to control other sources of air pollution, such as vehicle emissions. Because plants do take up particulate matter, maybe what's happening is they're emitting that a little bit more. But benefits of city trees include reducing stormwater runoff, providing cooling shade, and converting carbon dioxide to oxygen. But they also release chemicals that can interact with the environment and actually produce polluted air. Isoprene is one such chemical. It can react with nitrogen oxides, which are very often human-made compounds, and that forms a ground-level ozone, which can be hazardous to human health. Monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes also react with nitrogen oxides, and they make lots of little tiny particles like soot, which builds up in the air. In cities, cars and trucks are major sources of these oxides. And so in this study, the researcher Galina Cherkina of Humboldt University of Berlin and and the colleagues compared simulations of chemical concentrations that were emitted from plants in the Berlin-Brandenburg metropolitan area, focusing on 2006 summer when there was a heat wave and 2014 when it was a little bit more of a typical summer. And at normal daily maximum summer temperatures, which is around 25 degrees Celsius, because we're scientists, we use the Celsius scale, on average, plants' emissions contribute to about 6 to 20% of ozone formation. And at peak temperatures, when temperatures went over 30 degrees Celsius, emissions from plants spiked, and their share of ozone formation went up to 60%. Wow. 
The researchers weren't surprised, but the the magnitude was what they were really shocked by. So it's not good. I mean, I thought there was a silver lining to the climate change at the increased carbon. It's not good. There's a, it's not the silver lining's not so silver. Well, the, it's not all terrible though. I've got some good news for you. I've got something to put a smile Please. on your face. It's not so much putting a smile on my face as like rescuing me from <laughs> despondency. If you can see my face over there. I'm really sad. Yeah, I don't want you to be so sad. So let's talk about earworms. <laughs> and I don't. Oh, this is good. So this is going to be good. I'm confused. <laughs> and I'm not talking about earworms like when a song gets stuck in your head and you can't stop singing it. Oh, you're talking about actual earworms that crawl into your ear and eat your brain. I don't know why they're called earworms, but they live in corn. <laughs> corn earworms. Helicoverpazia. These earworms were analyzed in Maryland cornfields by researchers. 21 years of data have found that these earworms, with rising temperatures, develop resistance faster to a widespread genetically built-in crop protection. So climate change is maybe not so bad for the bugs, right? I mean, if you're a farmer trying not to have the bugs eat your corn, maybe this is bad news. But anyway, some commercial varieties of corn have been genetically modified, engineered with genes for a toxin borrowed from Bacillus thuringiensis, a bacteria. The toxin is known as BT, kills the earworms when they eat the crops. And with a lot of these BT corn acreage, plants are defended by the BT protein Cry1AB, and they suffered more earworm damage when it got hotter. The research team from the University of Maryland and College Park published this in the Royal Society Open Science Journal. It's unclear why more damage occurred when temperatures were warmer. Higher temperatures might be stressing the plants, undermining their defenses possibly. Pests evolving resistance might do so faster when the landscape is warming. Maybe that the warming lets them squeeze extra generations into a year. So maybe they're just having more offspring more often which allows them to have a better chance of surviving the winter and also gives more opportunities for genetic mutations to make it into the population. It's also possible that insects in the increased heat actually can metabolize the toxin more easily. They don't really know which of these options, which of these possibilities is correct or if there's some combination, but it's unusual that they actually have this detail and time span for the data set from years of cornfield monitoring. And so this link at this point is just based on correlations. And so it's just going to point scientists in the direction of really digging into how warming is potentially affecting pest species. So I I guess the silver lining, what you're talking about there is the coming plague. I'm thinking of like... As it gets hotter, the pests will eat all the corn, and then no more tortilla chips. I'm thinking like Interstellar. You ever see that movie? That's I what did. Right now. We're yeah. just running. The earworms are going to take over. The dust bowl and the earworms. We've got no chance. No hope, everyone. We got Trump. But you know what? When we are still in the womb, we are stimulated by faces. 
I don't get this. I saw this story on the feeds. Please explain it to me. I just can't even conceive of how this makes sense. Right. So this research was published online in Current Biology. It gives a bit of evidence that our preference for faces develops before birth. And this is the very first ever study of prenatal visual perception looking at third trimester fetuses who were more likely to move their heads to track face-like configurations of light that were projected into the womb instead of non-face-like shapes. And so they used they used light because it can project stuff mm. through the tissue and to see what they were following. So number one, they can follow light in the third trimester, but it's interesting to note that if the configuration is kind of eyes, nose, mouth shaped as opposed to a triangle, <laughs> <laughs> A rhombus, you know, they're actually more interested in looking at that two lights up top for eyes and one below for a nose or a mouth. Hey, that actually makes sense. Yeah. So we know that newborns pay special attention to faces or the face-like configuration, but we had never knew that this actually came about before birth. But if you're looking at third trimester fetuses you're what you're you're dealing with fairly developed youngsters right yeah they could survive outside the womb they could survive outside the womb so i'm not entirely surprised by this we know that vision takes a really long time to really fully develop but the fact that these very simple stimuli are stimulating at this point it's not necessarily I, it's surprising, but it's good to know, right? Yes, that's important information. Yeah, so they looked at uh, 39 fetuses and they showed these little babies each type of triangle. They had different triangles of red light in various configurations and they used 4D ultrasound to watch where the head of the little baby in the womb was actually orienting. You know, if it's looking at the where the lights are, then it's looking at it potentially. You can see like the eyes are open or closed in those 4D things. You can, huh? Yeah, you can. They're, they're getting much more accurate than they used to be. The resolution has increased a lot. You're watching a movie of your kid watching a movie. Yeah. Inside. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's so neat. I mean, this isn't a huge result, but of the 195 times a face-like triangle was projected, the fetuses turned their heads 40 times. And in contrast, the non-face-like triangles only brought about 14 head turns. So there we go. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. No, I'm not that convinced, but it's a, it's a cool idea. It makes sense. That's a cool idea. Yeah. But a much cooler idea is that there is a, a a new therapy on the way, a new immune therapy. It's called PD-1 blockade that can potentially control cancer. And in a new study, it controlled cancer in 77% of patients with who have defects in their DNA mismatch repair. So... This therapy was effective against 12 different types of solid tumors, colorectal, gastroesophageal, and pancreatic cancers, even tumors of unknown origin. This was reported in the June 8 
science. So it's this mutation, this mismatch repair that makes it difficult or prevents cells from being able to proofread and fix things that are wrong with their DNA. But these mutations themselves may make cancer cells vulnerable to immunotherapies. People with these defective proofreading mechanisms build up mutations. Those mutations can lead to cancer. And this is the where the interesting thing is. So this potential repair error can actually be the, the Achilles heel for this new type of therapy. Even before treatment, cancer patients in this study had a small number of infection and tumor-fighting T-cells that target unusual proteins, treating patients with an antibody called pembrolizumab. Pembrolizumab caused these T-cells to increase in number. All 86 patients in the study had metastatic cancers that had not responded well to other treatments. And for 18 of them, the antibody treatment appears to be a complete cure that made their tumors disappear entirely. They were treated for two years. And after two years, 11 of the patients got taken off the antibody. And even after at least 8.3 months, a median of 8.3 months, the tumors have not returned. They haven't grown back. It doesn't mean that they won't, but they haven't yet. Other patients, the tumors shrank, but didn't completely disappear. And scans suggest some of the patients still have tumors, but the biopsies they've done don't show any remaining cancer cells. And so these tumors, they're thinking, are really clusters of immune cells that have invaded the tumors to kill the cancer. Tumors in five patients initially shrank, but then grew again. And DNA from three of those people showed that two had mutations that had developed in the beta-2 microglobulin gene which actually helps immune cells track down their targets. So maybe the location of their particular mutations, it kept this immunotherapy from working. So researchers are very excited about this development. May 23rd, the FDA approved pembrolizumab for advanced stage cancer patients with these mismatch repair mutations for patients in which other drugs have failed. And so immune therapy could be very helpful in the near future. Yeah, this is a blockbuster, I think. Yep, this is big. It's going to lead to a lot more treatment, a lot more cures. I think the great thing is there's all these these cancers that just no, no one was moving on, and they're just sitting there, and this drug comes around and uh, could make a big impact. So I guess we'll wait and see how that hits. But what did you say, 60,000 late-stage cancer patients a year could be eligible for this? Wow. Yeah, 60,000. And if the percentages work out, I mean, that's going to be that tens of thousands of people will potentially be cured from their, their tumors. Full cure. Full, Full cure. cure. That's yeah. bonkers. Yeah. So you ended strong, Kiki. Thanks for that. The There's hope. Brown off. Feeling good. <laughs> good. And I've got in a first, I'm reporting a smart decision by the president, Donald Trump. He decided to appoint the director or reappoint the director of the National Institutes of Health, even though these pro-life advocates have called on uh, the director, Francis Collins, to be replaced because of, of course, his support for embryonic stem cell research that involves the destruction of human life. So last month, 40 Republicans in the House wrote President Trump urging him to get rid of NIH director, Dr. Collins, because of his support for the practice. 
And this, you got to listen to this quote. It's so, I mean, the the choice of words here, I think, is ridiculous and polarizing. Hmm. Quote, while we deeply respect Dr. Collins' Christian faith and commitment to public service, the stances that Dr. Collins has taken in the past regarding embryonic stem cell research and human cloning are not life-affirming and directly conflict with the pro-life direction of your new presidency. That's what the GOP lawmakers wrote to President Trump. I continue the quote. It's because of this troubling paradox that we ask for you to reconsider his leadership role at the NIH. So, I mean, let's review the argument there. The conservative base, or specifically these lawmakers, are contending that adults themselves have are been used to treat 100-plus diseases and medical conditions, and these don't require the destruction of human life. And embryonic stem cell research, in contrast, has yet to treat a single human being. So that's the argument, but I, I don't need to really pick that apart. It's obvious that it's early days for embryonic stem cell research. And while there have been adult stem cells applied to cure and treat many diseases, specifically hematological conditions by bone marrow transplant or umbilical cord transplant, cord blood transplant, mm-hmm. you know, this is a very specific class of diseases and a lot more diseases are going untreated. So I think we should be clear with this argument. And let's talk about Collins for a second. This is the guy, if you remember, who led the government's arm, you know, and going against Craig Ventner to sequence the human genome and following that gargantuan effort and and channeling of resources collectively and successfully to sequence the human genome. He was appointed the director and even Trump's own aides have asked for him to stay amongst other few Obama appointees to stay in their jobs for the purpose of continuity. So I think this was a smart decision by Trump, but I'm going to circle back around to another quote, this one from Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana, just to illustrate this argument they're making that I think is, I disagree with strongly. Quote, I'm disappointed in the Trump administration's decision to keep Dr. Francis Collins as head of the NIH. Dr. Collins' support of embryonic stem cell research, along with his comments that cloned embryos did not deserve the same moral protections as naturally generated embryos, quote, make him less than ideal fit for a pro-life administration. I think this is just negative. That's the end of the quote. I think these guys, they're just, it's again, this this effort, it's anti-scientific, using these really polarizing arguments that are meant to invoke an emotional reaction. And that's just not science. So I applaud, I never thought I'd say it, but I applaud you, Mr. President. You did a a good thing. You left out the sentence with like the big gut wrenching oh, yeah. emotional oh, yeah. phrase. Oh, yeah. Sorry. This is the worst. Kiki, you say it. I can't even say this. I am hopeful that Dr. Collins will turn away from embryo killing research as he continues his tenure as NIH director. Embryo killing. That's what I do, Kiki. That's what <sighs> my research is. If you wanted to sum it up in the elevator talk, that's how you call it. Embryo, I'm an embryo killer. Oh, oh, no. Ugh. All right. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because I have so many things to say about this. Too much. It's <laughs> too, much. too much. Let's talk about something that maybe we can do with these stem cells, okay? But first, I want to talk about something that we're probably not going to do. All right. Using stem cells to reverse brain death? Tell me it's true. Come on. Tell me uh, it's I- true. Oh, it's one of those things you think there's finality, brain death, you know, you think, okay, 
no coming back, but maybe not. May not be a life sentence. That's a terrible use of words here. That's not, those aren't my words. If one Philadelphia-based biomedical startup has its way, so this company is called BioQuark. They plan to initiate a study. So they're planning to initiate a study mm. later this year. So I guess they haven't gotten very far. To see if a combination, get this, stem cell and protein blend injections, electrical nerve stimulation, and laser therapy. So, I mean, that's it. You got lasers, <laughs> stem cells, <laughs> nerve <laughs> stimulation. Yeah, okay, it I mean, mix it up. You mix right? it all up and you zap it and then... Yes, yes. I mean, this is really a harking back to the Frankenstein picture here. So you mix that all up and you're literally trying to bring people back from the dead. Let's get a quote. It's our contention that there's no single magic bullet for this. End quote for a second. Magic bullet for for brain death. (laughs) I'm going to continue the quote now. So to start with a single magic bullet makes no sense. Hence why we have to take different approach. All right. So I'll tell you what makes no sense. Any of it. All right. But <laughs> let's go on. So this is all this is interesting. This is interesting because it's not the first time that they've attempted this study. Last April, they launched a nearly identical study in Rudrapur, India. However, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Sorry, taking the Lord's name there. But no patients enrolled. Can you believe that? They couldn't even recruit dead people. <laughs> sake. So no patients enrolled and uh, the study wound up getting shut down. Who would have thought in November by the Indian government over clearance issues with India's drug controller general. So now BioQuark is nearing a deal with an unnamed unnamed Latin American country because they're embarrassed. uh, Exactly. a new trial later this year and whether the treatment will actually work. That's totally that's open question, clearly. But, and BioQuark, in their, to their credit, they admit that they've never tested the regimen, even in animals, and the various component treatments have never been applied in the context of brain death. But they've shown some promise in similar cases like stroke, brain damage, and comas, but never actually like death, coming back from death. So, so brain death is where the electrical activity in the brain stops I mean, there's the various levels, right? First, it's like, oh, the cognitive portions of the brain aren't working, but the brain is still stimulating respiration, still keeping up heart rate and all that circulation, that stuff's still working. Brain death is when the body preserving functions of the brain end. Done. Done. I mean, we can keep a body alive for a little while on like a heart lung machine, right? You just. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, also to be clear, we're not talking about like you blink out and then they bring you back. This is not a short process. Let me go through it real quick. Yeah. The newly dead person first, they're newly dead. Okay. That's T zero. They receive an injection of stem cells derived from their own blood. Then the doctors inject a proprietary blend called BQA into the patient's spinal column. This is supposed to regrow the neurons that are damaged upon death. Finally, because we know we're so good about, re- we can totally regrow neurons. We do it all the time. We got that figured. That's why we're fixing spinal cord injuries all the time. Paralysis is yeah. a thing of the past. When's the last <sighs> time we saw someone in a wheelchair? And then, you know, the last part, which is no small thing, the patient undergoes 15 days of electrical nerve stimulation and transcranial laser therapy. So they're shooting a laser into the head. Yes, of course. 
Where else would they put it? <laughs> okay. Yeah, just 20, short, a mere 20 days. So right. you're dead for 20 days just and then it's like, hey, <laughs> what's up? That was, yeah, that was weird. That was weird. This oh. is a bit awkward that you had my funeral and collected mm. on my death benefits, but I'm going to need those back. All right. So now though, let's talk about something serious. Okay. So okay. this is a cool thing that I saw in stem cell reports. So myelomeningocele, okay, this is a complex medical term, but this is the most common serious form of spina bifida, which maybe people okay. are more familiar with. You yep. know, you've got to get your folate early in pregnancy or neural tube closure. We all know this. Uh, a baby born with this disorder typically has this open area or fluid-filled sac on the mid to lower back. And kids with this condition are at risk of brain damage because there's too much fluid buildup in their brains. But uh, babies born with myelomingocele, they usually undergo a surgery right when they're born in the first few days of life. But you could get earlier, you could address it earlier, like in, in utero using a prenatal surgery that can improve the neurological outcomes for these patients better than doing it in the first days of life. But it's complicated because you can get, uh, there's like higher rates of premature birth and there's other serious complications so, you know, it'd be great if we could improve these kind of prenatal therapies. It'd be a better chance for outcome, but mitigate maybe the risk of doing these in utero therapies. So that brings me to the story. This is a group in a preclinical study that was just published. Researchers, they developed this stem cell-based therapy for generating skin grafts that would cover the myelomeningocele defects in utero before birth. And they did this by from IPS cells. They got human-induced pluripotent stem cells and then transplanted these grafts that they made in vitro into rat fetuses wow. that had myelomeningocele model. Okay. So this is, this is really, I think, it should get, I guess, a lot more credit, I hope, in the days to come. It, just to give you a little bit more detail on the technical process, because I think it's important. What they did is they actually took amniotic fluid samples. They generated iPS cells from fetal cells from amniotic fluid from two pregnancies that had severe fetal disease. One was a Downs baby and one was a twin-twin transfusion syndrome. And they used the, the iPS cocktail. They turned into iPS cells. They turned the iPS cells into skin cells and then treated those cells with additional compounds to make them grow into this multi-layered skin graft. And it's important here, the total process from getting the amniotic fluid to having the 3D skin graft took 14 weeks. And that's within a therapeutic window. If you got the amnio, you could treat the fetus at 28 to 29 weeks of gestation, which is, you know, gives them an edge 10 weeks in advance of doing it in the first days of birth, which could really make a difference in treating the spina bifida there. So, and in this case, they transplanted these 3D skin grafts into 20 rat fetuses through a small incision in the uterine wall doing this you know, in utero therapy, prenatal therapy model, and the artificial skin covered the myelomeningocele defect in eight of these 20 newborn rats and completely covered in four of the others. So that's 12 success out of 20, which is a good rate, and completely fixing it in 20% of the animals. And the engrafted skin regenerated and incorporated with the fetal surrounding host tissue and accelerated the coverage of this myelomeningocele. And notably, just as a little minor point, these cells that were transplanted, IPS cells, didn't form tumors, showing that this is 
likely to be safe uh, transplanting these kind of differentiated cells. So to quote the group leader on this, we are encouraged by our results and believe that our fetal stem cell therapy has great potential to become a novel treatment for myeloma and injustice. However, additional studies in larger animals are needed to demonstrate that our fetal stem cell therapy safely promotes long-term skin regeneration and neurological improvement. This is a great example, I think, Kiki, of like not low-hanging fruits, but things that you don't think of with degenerative disease and regenerative medicine. It's these little things, I think, that you can do just to, as an assist, you know, for uh, conditions that aren't necessarily life-ending or threatening, but can really drastically improve the quality of life for patients. How often is prenatal surgery done? I know, right? Isn't that right? I mean, I'm sure it's a balance of risk. I know it's done a lot in cardiology, you know, and treating heart defects. Yeah. You know, it, it sounds really scary and stressful, but I have to say that as the, you know, robotics and um, the arthro and the microsurgery improves and the right. visualization, like you were talking about the 40 ultrasound, the things you can do now with uh, micro instrumentation and robotics and the deft hands of a skilled surgeon are pretty incredible. Yeah. And so this probably would be a, a very beneficial as, as they move forward I and mean, they still have to show safety, but if it works, I mean, this could be a very, very a low risk procedure comparatively to the risk of the, the end defect. Yeah, just think being treated with your own stem cells That's before cool. you're yeah. born. That's really bizarre. <laughs> I got another cool got idea one more. from my man, Mark Tomashima. They call him Tomashima. He's always scheming, Toma scheming. And this time he's scheming for the betterment of all our experiments. He's come up with a really great idea, uh, cryopause. Okay, so this is the, the bottom line here. I'm going to tell you just the short conversation that typically happens between two people talking about their protocols. They'll say, oh, you know, I'm differentiating X and Y different cell type out of my ES cells. I get 30%. The other guy says, oh, that's weird. I'm getting at 10%. I'm using your exact protocol, dude. What's going on here? Guy A says, oh, I don't know what to tell you, buddy. It's probably something to do with your culture conditions. Probably something to do with your cell line. It's probably something to do with X and Y and Z and the other thing. It's why San Francisco sourdough is only really San Francisco sourdough, exactly. right? It's just these little nuances that are different between lines, between operators. There's all these differences, and, and they add up to a subtle variability between experimental efficacy and you know optimization, and I get this, but you, you can't, and et cetera. And what we need here is something to level the playing field. It's difficult. Well, not so much anymore. Mark Tomashima and his group have developed like a whole new workflow that essentially flattens out the material that we're talking about. It's a method of dissociating and cryopreserving cells so they can be used directly post-thaw. You can make large batches of these cells, send them out. You know, this is really important when we're talking about you doing trials so that we can standardize our inputs and get results that are reliable and reproducible. And these cryopreserved cells can be used directly, differentiated with high fidelity toward the original cell line. They can also be gene edited. So you can do like all these interventions, essentially any experiment you want right off the shelf, so to speak. Hmm. And I think it's going to be an approach that's widely adopted when you're starting to scale up these therapies towards real preclinical work. We need to get clear support for it to justify these experiments. The ideas are exciting, but maybe 
the data there is not so strong to support full-on application of some therapies. And I think uh, using this approach of leveling the playing field with the input should be a, a way towards uh, or in the right direction for sure. So Dr. Tomashima, thank you for your help as always, helping the research community. I think it's great. Yeah. If you anything that we can do to make it more repeatable, more replicable, I mean, that's what we need. It needs consistency. Yeah. For these therapies to really be options, we need consistency. Even to figure out if they are therapies, if they're going to work, we need, we need data. We need data. Yep. You know what we need to get into now? What's that, Keeks? Our interview. Oh, man, I'm nervous. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to start this conversation. But before we do get into the interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about their new bone marrow niches and HSC fates wall chart. Created by Nature Reviews Immunology and Nature Reviews Molecular Cell Biology, this reference provides a snapshot of all the signals influencing HSC mobilization, quiescence, and differentiation, as well as factors leading to malignancy in humans or in mouse models. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can get their free copy of this wall chart at www.stemcell.com slash nature niche. Nature niche. It's a deep wall chart. There's a, it's a pretty one, though. There's a lot of stuff in there. Blood. Providing information on stress signals, these factors that lead to malignancy. Blood. It's big, too. Blood. blood. <laughs> you love the blood. Oh, the bone marrow. We do love the bone marrow. It's pretty big, 75 centimeters by 52 centimeters. And if you go to stemcell.com slash nature niche, you just enter your information. They will send it to you. You can also download it digitally. It's pretty awesome. Okay. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Drs. Shaheen Rafi and Rafael Lees to the show. Dr. Rafi is Director of the Ansari Stem Cell Institute, Chief of the Division of Regenerative Medicine, and the Arthur B. Belfer Professor at Weill Cornell Medicine. His lab investigates stem cell biology and angiogenesis using in vivo mouse models. They also use mouse and human genetics, tissue culture, and molecular biology to model angiogenesis, cancer, and stem cell metabolic regulation. Dr. Lees, who was first author on their recent Nature paper, which we are so excited to discuss, is an instructor in regenerative medicine and the TRI Tri-Sci Flow Cytometry Core Manager at Weill Cornell Medicine. Yeah, and I'd like to add Shaheen Rafi is my former mentor, and he's like a brother to me. Wow. So we've got some personal history that we can dig into for this interview. I want stories. We're going to keep the stories to a minimum. I can only show pictures. If this were a visual medium, it would be a lot more interesting. But suffice to say, the science speaks for itself on this day's show. Fantastic. Well, let's get into the science. And thank you, both of you, for joining us. Welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us. You're welcome. Dr. Rafi, can you start us off by telling our audience just in a little bit more detail than what I briefly summarized above, the focus of your work and what you do in your lab. We study the uh, contribution of the vascular cells from different organs in regenerative medicine and also 
in cancer. So we believe that when these lining of the blood vessels that previously were thought to be just inert plumbing and just serving to as a conduit to deliver oxygen and nutrients play a more seminal role in biology and most specifically these endothelial cells that line the blood vessels seems to orchestrate organ regeneration, organ repair, and during development, they, they choreograph the whole developmental processes. When they develop maladaptation, they also ignite the formation of cancer cells. So there is adaptation and maladaptation of endothelial cells seems to regulate regenerative medicine, cancer biology, and most importantly, stem cell physiology. And Raphael, how did you come to work with Dr. Rafi? That's kind of complicated. I was like working in Cornell, Qatar for my PhD like a couple of years ago. And we were like working on generation of hematopoietic stem cell from embryonic stem cell. So that's how I got to meet Dalen and Shaheen. Actually, Dalen was my previous mentor and I consider him as my brother as well. So, so many brothers. A, oh, my goodness. Exactly. <laughs> so we started this project using like ES-derived system and then we adjusted the approach to direct reprogramming now. And I guess like that's what we're supposed to discuss today. So, All right. So let's get to it, guys. My brothers, we're talking <laughs> today about not necessarily mm -hmm. developmental hematopoiesis. You guys have taken maybe a back road to hematopoiesis that's more clinically applicable, arguably. Maybe you guys could tell us about how you've done this induced hematopoietic stem cell project. Raphael, you want to give us the details? Basically, what we did is we isolated mature adult endothelial cells, either from mouse and human. And to start with, to identify like some key transcription factor that could elicit this phenomenon called endothelial to hematopoietic transition, we basically did some RNA sequencing analysis, identified a couple of candidate transcription factors, 27, and restrict this list to four. When you introduce these four transcription factors into adult endothelial cells, not only are you able to see in vitro this endothelial to hematopoietic transition, but at the end, you're able to transplant these cells and actually recreate the host hematopoiesis, both in the human and mouse system. Why is this a big deal? I mean, I know that it's a huge deal. And people, I could say that people have been searching for like a bona fide hematopoietic stem cell that they can culture and get their mm -hmm. hands on, manipulate and use therapeutically. Why is this story, just speaking clinical implications, what diseases are we going to tackle with this? Are there any diseases we're not going to attack with this? Is this what you've been working on? Is this going to lead to personal blood supplies, personalized hematopoiesis for blood disorders? Yes, so many aspects of this. Number one, for therapeutics, this is a major breakthrough because there are many patients who, if they have genetic bone marrow graft match, their treatment for leukemias, lymphomas, and many other hematological disorders can be more effectively instituted. So those patients who don't have a genetic match, we can isolate their own endothelial cells, which is easy as opposed to what was mentioned in several news uh, reports. This can be easily isolated, expanded, and then we can switch them into a hematopoietic stem cell and then give it back to the patient. What's interesting here is that many leukemia and lymphomas and other hematological disorders may harbor mutations. So people, if you want to use um, 
different approaches for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, it's going to be tough to clear those mutations during transplant. Endothelial cells do not carry those mutations. So when we switch self-autologous endothelial cell to hematopoietic stem cell, we're going to generate cells that when and they engraft, they're going to repopulate the bone marrow without generating those mutations. So it can be curative for those. There is also many genetic disorders like sickle cell anemias, thalassemias, Fanconi's anemias, where this approach can make it much easier to treat this patient. We can get endothelial cell from this patient, genetically correct endothelium. And since endothelial cells are amenable for clonal expansion, as Rafael showed in the paper, then we can have corrected hematopoietic stem cells derived from endothelium and transplant back to patient. So this is one aspect that is, I think, is a major breakthrough because despite enthusiasm of getting stem cell, organ-specific stem cell from liver, heart, and brain, none of them has achieved to generate stem cells. So this is going to be a harbinger for direct reprogramming autologous tissues to generate stem cell. And one last thing I want to say is that we still do not understand how any type of stem cell, whether it's a hematopoietic stem cell, germline stem cells, if you believe adult organ-specific stem cell exists, they undergo self-renewal. They can regenerate two stem cells. We know there are a combination of cytokines can induce or promote self-renewal, but that has never been achieved. So Rafal was able to prove that can happen in tissue culture because he generated stem cell. Most other groups, they put this transcription factor that immediately transplant because they don't have the approach to generate this over time. So our, Rafael was able to see the generation of these stem cells over time. Let's just to, to zero in on what everybody's been trying to do but not been able to do. You said it, but just to paraphrase Rafael, it's to get a true stem cell. So how do you prove that it's a, what have people failed to do thus far? And what is your major proof that you have a true stem cell in your culture here? We have to keep in mind that for years now, there's like several groups, like for the past decade, I would say, several groups try to achieve what we achieved uh, recently. And they were actually failing to show some functional engraftment. That is to say they were like having phenotypical hematopoietic stem cell in the dish, but they were not able to prove their function. The big aspect of our paper is not only to show we're getting functional hematopoietic stem cells because they reconstitute all blood cell lineage. We also show that some of their subsets, some of their progeny, mainly the T cells, are able to undergo successful vaccination. And on top of that, we're able to quantify the output of our strategy. So basically, we're just reuniting fundamental aspect of hematopoietic stem cell, which is like quantification by limiting dilution functionality by like reconstitution of all blood cell lineages, but also adaptive immune function. And coronality also. And clonality. Yes. So one thing I want to mention along the same line, every time Rafael presented this, many experts in the field emphasize if you really suggesting that we have a true stem cell, like Daylon mentioned, you have to do clonal transplantation. What does that mean? When we switch the endothelial cell to these hematopoietic stem cells, if we believe they are stem cell, in addition to their capacity to give right T cell, B cell, innate immunity, and all the other lineages, you can transplant one stem cell 
and let them repopulate the whole marrow, and then you can do serial transplantation. So what Rafael did, in, while he was uh, reprogramming this endothelial cell to an hematopoietic cell, he was able to get one reprogrammed cell, expand it on this vascular niche, which is very essential for this process, and then he showed that one putative stem cell that was produced was not only we were able to repopulate a mouse, one clonal cell, but it also generated other clonal hematopoietic stem cells. So I think that's one of the major breakthrough and message of the paper that the, for the first time, we have generated cells that clonally repopulate mice. And the niche, the nurturing niche that was endothelial vascular niche supported this regeneration. So that was another breakthrough that Daylon was referring to. And just to specify here with this serial transplantation, you're going from the dish. Well, I guess you're going from a mouse endothelium into a dish. You reprogram, you put that clonal cell into a mouse and then that repopulates. And then you do a serial transfer into a successive mouse and then a third mouse. So how long are we talking here? How many weeks collectively has this single cell been able to expand and have this function and repopulating ability? Roughly. Yeah. In your study, you say long-term. So what exactly is long-term? Let's say the gold standard field is like at least 16 weeks of primary, 16 weeks of secondary. And really, if you want to push it, you go to tertiary. Some of our transplant has been in a mouse in the cumulative time for over a year and a half now. Is that the lifespan of a single mouse or is this over successive transplantations? It's over successive transplantation, but in terms of cumulative mice, we capitulate the lifespan of a mouse. Basically, this single cell was able to like being maintained in some recipients for more than a year and a half. That is amazing. When you think of one cell becoming God knows how many billions and actually sustaining function and rescuing these mice from what could be critical insult. I mean, this is a real biological tool. It's in play right now. On that note, what are we talking about in terms of clinical application? Where are you guys looking? So the next step, we want to mention something. So the current paper received a, a lot of excitement because we showed the, with the great work of Rafael that was, is a true hematopoietic stem cell. It was done in the urine system. But two years prior of that, with the work of our other colleague, uh, Vladik Sandler, we also showed this is possibly with human system. We did the same technology that we developed, putting four transcription factor, then expand them on vascular niche. The reason that study, I mean, it was exciting at that time, but did not receive so much attention was because we didn't claim we have hematopoietic stem cell. But going back to your question, we did primary and secondary, and Vladik showed in few mice that he can go even for two years, human engrafted into xenograft. The reason we didn't call those human hematopoietic stem cell, we were very careful because we were in mouse is very difficult to prove that we had t- functional T cell, functionally immune cells. But now we already, Rafael has done a few experiments the last few weeks and using this technology and we're getting human engraftable T cells. So the next step, we think we are ready to push this technology into clinical setting. The next step would be to do on non-human primates. We already in collaboration with Dr. Hans-Peter Kerbel from Hodgkin Cancer Center. Rafael has acquired the monkey endothelial cells and been in the process of using the same technology to convert them 
into monkey hematopoietic stem cell. And this was obtained from young postnatal monkey we hope to transplant back into the same monkey. You want to elaborate on yeah. what you're doing at the moment? So, yeah, Ashing was saying, like, with Hans-Peter Kim in Seattle, like, what we're doing right now is, like, testing two aspects of the technology, which are, are we able to scale up to a clinical dose? And therefore, that's why we upgraded, let's say, to monkeys. And is this technology safe? Now we're going to be able to answer to your question without like cumulative time of transplant, like within an animal that lives like three to five years, whether or not these cells are like literally giving rise to sustain the hematopoietic system for a long time. On top of that, we'll be able to precisely look at whether or not we're inducing some tumor. Luckily for us, when we looked, when we necropsied the mice, we never seen any kind of leukemia, clonal rearrangement by RNA-seq especially in the B and T cell subset, and all like some kind of myelodysplastic syndrome by histology. However, that's not sufficient to prove any kind of safety. That's why to upgrade to monkey. On top of that, using this monkey animal, we're going to be able to know how much we can scale up. Are we able to deliver this clinical dose? Because now we're talking like huge amount of cells. I think based on the preliminary data we have and the technology Shaheen developed over years, we don't think the scalability is going to be an issue and we're like really looking forward to transplant the first monkey hopefully by the end of the year. Oh, that'll be so exciting. You mentioned earlier that it's a super easy process to get these endothelial cells. Is that a, an injection? Are you going into a blood vessel to scrape the inside of the blood vessel? What's the process? So from a mouse, it's pretty easy. You just like infuse an, an antibody specific for endothelial cells. So we're using an anti-VIC adherent antibody conjugated to any Alexa fluoride. You wait seven minutes, you sacrifice your mouse, you digest a, an organ, and suddenly all your like endothelial cells actually light up. You can't do that with a person. <laughs> you can't do that with a person. Right. Develop an efficient technique with human from like human fat biopsy using first like a bit, we're doing like this good old stromal vascular fraction isolation based on differential centrifugation, followed by beads. And we're able to get like fraction of endothelial cells, which are around like 85% pure. And then we followed by a classical fax sorting. And then you have your EC prep, like from a, a human. What about the idea, you know, they're so prevalent nowadays is the cord blood. What about the idea of every time someone's born, you save not only their cord blood, but their cord endothelium? Would that cord endothelium be able to serve later in the life, God forbid, if there was a condition? Or do you need a specific type of endothelium? When you say adult endothelium, is there any specificity of what type of endothelium, as you alluded to, Shaheen, the vascular mm -hmm. tree is tremendously diverse and organ-specific? This is a great question. So Rafael showed that in adult mice, when he isolates endothelium from any organ, lung, brain, kidney, heart, there can easily be converted to hematopoietic stem cells. For the question that you brought up is very interesting. Should, in addition to cord blood that is being uh, stored for future hematopoietic transplantation, should we start to also isolate endothelium from the lining of the cord to save it? As you know, you did with your kids, I think, I did with my kids. And the problem is the cost. But we uh, have started a company that they're, they're contemplating that every time we get a cord to do that. Ever, there is an even simpler way to do this. We have published, we work daily initiated, that 
we can also convert a fibroblast without going to pluripotent state into endothelial cell. And that was done for any work that we did initially with the Dale on uh, when he was in my lab, where he can put three transcription factors, AB2, FLY1, ERG, and you can turn them to endothelium. You can imagine, and we have uh, both uh, Rafael and other postdocs in the lab, we can just get a preferred blood. We can turn even blood, make him a transition to endothelial cell and then to amaropoietic stem cell. That may not be good for leukemias because they harbor the mutation. In that situation, we can maybe use the fibroblast, maybe easily can be obtained. And those, and fibroblasts and even endothelial cells circulate in human body, especially in during very early stages of the development. Till age 10, there is a lot of circulating endothelium. So we can have full access to endothelium or fibroblasts and make them to transition to hematopoietic stem cell. Now, if we show with non-primate model that this technology easily can be translatable to clinical setting, then I think as a lot of core blood companies starting to get core blood fibroblasts to freeze, and Rafael mentioned some of the endothelium is there, maybe we should start to think about to, as Dalon suggested, freeze down the endothelium. And endothelium, you're finding, is not just can be directly reprogrammed to hematopoietic stem cell. They are very plastic. They have the capacity to morph to many different cell types. So I think freezing endothelium may not be set up the stage for just go to hematopoietic stem cell, but without transition to pluripotent state, we can directly go to cardiac tissue. Daylines working in hemangioangioblast, neuroangioblast. So I think eventually this can be the beginning of curing a lot of disease using the plastic-friendly endothelium. And I think it's fascinating to get these different processes. So you can either go from endothelium directly to hematopoietic stem cell, or you can do fibroblast to pluripotent stem cell to hematopoietic. And so there are these different procedures and they all have their benefits and possibly their challenges for different kinds of settings and needs. Can you talk specifically about what you're working on and like the challenges for its use versus the benefits? The challenges we have be using four transcription factors, phosphate, uh, GFI1, uh, SPI1, and RONX1. So we have to put the four lentiviruses, but we're working on strategies rather than putting lentiviruses that can, upon integration, cause some oncogenic transformation, which is very rare. We are looking at strategies to do non-integrative approaches, like modified RNA, uh, using different approaches to avoid that, which is easily to be done. Rafael is going to start because our model system allows the cells to be expanded over 28 days in tissue culture. That allows us to do screen for small molecule to even replace one or two, three, or even all the four transcription factors. So this is the biggest challenge to avoid any transcription factors, lentiviral, integrative, that can streamline to the clinical setting. There was a companion paper in the same issue from George Daly's group at Harvard. So what about the idea of going from pluripotent cells to an intermediate that then can become a hematopoietic cell? How does your approach compare to theirs? People have been trying very hard to get a functional, mature, stable cell from embryonic stem cell from iPS-derived cell. And this is important because those cells can be expanded tremendously, so it's very effective. 
but it's been a challenge to differentiate pluripotent to a functional. And George Daly's study is, should be applauded because this is the first time they were able to get any cell that can, although they injected this cell directly in the bone marrow, and eventually some of them were able to maybe circulate. But even though this paper is very exciting, it also teaches us something, that the, the dream that we had to get pluripotent cell and directly differentiate them to functional engraftable any cell type is a long way to go because Daly group did a great job to finding seven transcription factors was necessary to make him engraft. And I think eventually they may make this more efficient. They may cut down the number of transcription factors. But that teaches us the way we thought about pluripotent stem cell to facilitate rapid differentiation to mature cell is not that easy. And I think they have to do a lot of work because if the way to approach that compared to us, we can get fibroblasts or endothelium, put forth transcription factor and put a vascular niche and go directly to them. For a patient, if they want to use it in autologous setting, they have to get the fibroblast. They can use chemical or other approaches to get IPS. That already requires a lot of work. Regulatory input from FDA, they have to make sure it's clonal. Clinical trial in Japan has shown that it's very costly to go autologous because of a generation of annotated oncogenes. So eventually it's been predicted that you may get some type of cell lines that can serve based on the HLA-1 and HLA-2 or a haplotype. Haplotype, yeah. It serves a lot of population, but till we found that for the whole population of the United States, it's going to take a long time. But if you can circumvent that problem, they have still to circumvent the problem of seven additional transcription factors, many of which are activated in leukemias, including HOX-A9, HOX-A3, HOX-A5, and many other factors. And they don't mention in their paper, I mean, they allude to the paper, but they had also to transition to an endothelial state. They call it hemogenic state. And I think we believe, and they also may believe, that they generated their own vascular niche. And I think if they use our data, improve their vascular niche, maybe they can improve their technology to get a brain graftment. So I think both technologies should be approached and both technology and other approaches have been tested because we don't know how this cell behave as Rafael cell in terms of the scalability, uh, their potential to cause uh, tumorogenicity. And I think we are at an exciting time. And for the first time, these two papers indicated that we can achieve this goal. And now we need more funding to move forward. You mentioned also earlier that just the potential for self-renewal and understanding or not understanding how cells do this and just the basic processes. So what is your technique going to allow us to learn about this process that is so essential? As Shaheen was mentioning, the advantage maybe of our technique is that we're generating these cells in vitro. And the fact we're using a specialized vascular layer to drive this process is going to allow us actually to do some small molecule screening. And then it's easy since we're able to track the uh, birth and the expansion of these hematopoietic stem cells. Then we have an easy readout, which is reprogramming our ECs. We're trying to catch the birth of this hematopoietic stem cell. And then we just challenge them with different small molecules and we see whether or not they expand and or self-new. So I think we, uh, Shane and I, we really want to emphasize that 
our process is actually occurring in vitro, and that's going to allow us to decipher a lot of signaling cues, which could, at the end, help us to improve our technology. So there are two things that our technology can uh, help. One is the birth of the hematopoietic stem cells that Rafael alluded to. In mouse, the duration of the transition of the aortic gonadomesonephral endothelial cell, that's the site in aorta when these cells are born, into a hemogenic endothelium versus a hematopoietic stem cell usually takes place around two days or three days, maximum three days, and people have shown this beautiful transition. That's a short-lived fleeting time to study this. And it's very difficult to study this. What our technology has allowed, we have deconvoluted that three days into almost 20 days. It's a slow motion. Other technologies, you know, mentioned George Daly, they weren't able or they haven't been able to do that yet. As soon as they put the seven transcription factor, they had to transplant within 12 hours back to the mice. So that doesn't allow you to find the mechanism how this forms. So developmentally, for a lot of groups who want to understand how this amazing flat endothelium turns into a round floating cell, which from the developmentally and structural biology is a very instructive system, they can interrogate this system and learn a lot. So that one approach allows you to. I believe a unique set of self-renal factors exist. Self-renal is a basis of life. Without self-renal, germ cells don't self-renew. And life doesn't exist. We, we have discovered during the last 30 years incredible amount of knowledge of many signaling cascades, including notch, wind, hedgehogs, and all of that. But as of yet, combination of these factors has not teach us how stem cell goes symmetric self-renewal. And we, I think, we have seen it in vitro for our system. And not only that, with a vascular niche, we have been maintained this process. So I think we are extremely excited now to go and figure out how this happens, how this self-renewal process happens. In it may not be a growth factor. It can be something related to a lot of our stem cells are in direct contact with the vascular niche. Maybe that crosstalk, that interaction is important for self-renewal. Maybe metabolism between these two. So we want to eavesdrop a word that Raphael loves, molecularly, between the conversation of this newly born self stem cell and the vascular niche and figure out how they're talking to each other to allow this happen. And I think that has set up a huge system for us to move on with that. couple of molecular voyeurs over here. Voyeurs. <laughs> That's right. No, they're just more like they're spies. Speaking, they're okay. spying on the cells. Less, yes, less spying, creepy. Yes. Less creepy. Yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little menacing, though. Actually, that's a much better word, spying. I like it. No, I like eavesdrop. Eavesdrop's good. But the, being able to do that, having slowed down the time frame that these processes take place, allows you to catch those molecular handshakes that take place to be able to see what information is being passed back and forth between these different environments, these different groups of cells and what might actually be going in there. I think you take that and then add it to things like computational genetics and computational molecular whoosie what's it's. And suddenly you've got all sorts of possibilities for factors that you can really hone in on as the ones that are in charge of the process. 
So is that the goal, guys? Do you think we'll ever find a recipe, a cocktail of like recombinant proteins or something that'll allow us to maintain a hematopoietic stem cell? Is this the holy grail of... Uh... <laughs> is that what we're looking at here or is that just a, a dream? The elixir of life. In fact, when Daylon was in lab, we talk about sephrenol factor in every lab meeting. And that's my dream. I don't think one factor or combination of factors cause sephrenol. What I think is happening, and every time I give this talk about angiocrine factor, this growth factors from endothelial cells that cause survival, maintenance, birth of, we call them these angiocrine growth factors. It turns out that I don't think you're going to find a recombinant factor or factors to cause sephrenol. The niche is more complex, and that's why we may never able to do that, because we are finding a lot of this factor produced by endothelium, they oscillate. In the morning, a factor called kid ligand goes up, TJ beta is there. In the afternoon, HCOS goes up, kid ligand comes down. This has already borne out the study of transcription factors. Hedgehog regulators like HAY1 and HES1, they oscillate daily to regulate neuronal development. So HAY1 goes up based on the PER1, PER2 clock genes, and they regulate it like that. And that oscillation regulates developmental processes. I think the niche has learned through evolution how to do this by producing this mechanism where it may produce this cytokine in a very regulated manner oscillatory that allows this happen. And that's very important because what we do for stem cell expansion these days, you get supra-physiological doses of cytokine or these aryl hydrocarbon inhibitors, which are very important for even function of stem cell. And you just put it, force the stem cell to divide. And I think that can be dangerous because stem cells are very powerful. If a self-renewing stem cell becomes angry, acquire mutation, you get leukemia or dysfunctional stem cell. The way we expand our stem cell on vascular niche is what physiology does. It protects, shepherds the process of stem cell sephrenol over time. So maybe one day we can do that, but Daylon, we need 20 postdoc. 10 <laughs> postdoc in the morning, add the inhibitory factors, 10 postdoc in afternoon. And maybe eventually we can use a clock genes to do that, but again, this system would allow us how to do that because stem cell sephrenol is a very regulated process. You don't want to sephrenol too fast because the chromatin can become mutated and lead to malignant process. What do you think? You believe in sephrenol, right? Yeah. Okay, so you think you're my brother, so I believe in yes. sephrenol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe instead of 20 postdocs, it's just you need a robot. The robot to, to do the mixing. Brothers. We need to adopt more brothers. <laughs> What about sisters? Come on, guys. Yeah, <laughs> we, need, we definitely need sisters for the, they can help us with the differentiation process. But I want to tell you something. If you need a robot that to me is going to be much more expensive, once we decipher the mechanism, the niche does that, why not use the vascular niche? Because if we're starting a clinical trial, uh, hopefully very soon, where are we going to get the cord hematopoietic stem progenitors that put them on vascular expand them, and co-transplant both the endothelium and the expanded hematopoietic cell? I think that's exciting because everybody ignores when you do bone marrow transplant, patients have gotten radiation, chemotherapy, all different toxic factors to kill the cancer cell, which damages the normal hematopoietic cell. 
But at the same time, damages all the good niches, the vascular niche. So I think endothelial transplant may also help to repair the niches, which the robot cannot in a clinical setting, and that can allow for stem cell expansion. But I think we should study both. And hope what robotics can be good also maybe for For experiments. All right. Well, 10 postdocs in the morning, 10 at night, a few brothers, some sisters, robots. We're going to pull it all together and we're going to make things right. Kiki, what an amazing interview with these guys. I used to work for this guy. I think that you had a lucky, amazing experience. I did. I've just had so much fun with this conversation already. There's just all sorts of inspirational ideas and I'd love to more conversations like this. So good. Yes. Can I just make a few acknowledgements here at the end? So I want to mention that the paper that was published in 2014 in Nature that reported the human human stem cell was done, initiated by when we recruited Vladik Sander, came to our lab, had this great idea. And with the help with Raphael and many people in the lab, including Joseph Scandura, Jason Butler, resulted to that paper. Vladi graduated, went to better things. And then Raphael was persistent and focused. And he should be credited for doing a lot of this work. And we were lucky that Raphael had immunology background, right? You were trained. Yeah. And I just recently learned also he was thinking instead of going to immunology, you want to be orchestra wanted to go to musical school. Musical school. Thanks God he didn't do it, but I did. He is in musical school because you have found... Cellular music. Cellular music, exactly, orchestra. And I want to mention on this recent paper, in addition to Raphael, again, Joseph Scandura, Jason Butler, CJ Crush, Polos, and who else? You Balvier, Balvier, Nancy Speck. Nancy Speck, and many other, Chatiana, and many other... Mike Ginsberg, they all played a major role in, and uh, Gabriel Durant, grad student, to put this complex paper together. It was all a team effort. And I think it was a, we had a dream team, we have another dream team, and hopefully this dream team is going to continue. Yeah, well, it sounds like you are embarked on some amazing research that I'm really looking forward to hearing results from at the end of the year, as Raphael alluded to earlier. And maybe we, we bring Daylon back for advice with his new technology. Yes. And all of you got to pay me. You got to pay me. Yes. Eyes are capacity only for the, for the bucks, Shaheen. You're rich no now. Problem. No problem. No problem. <laughs> Cash. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate this. Thank you for uh, this. Your questions were right on the mark. Very, uh, And we thank you as well. Thank you very much. All right, so that was Shaheen and Raphael, a major influence in my life and a good friend, my brothers and, you know, innovators doing stuff that's pretty impressive. I, I took a whack at it, couldn't get it done. I tried to recruit some collaborators to help me out. Former host of the podcast, Yost, we couldn't get it done, but these guys are getting it done. So Kiki, another thing that I couldn't do that someone did behind me. Great. Congratulations, guys. <laughs> it is great. I mean, they didn't have to make your mistakes <laughs> because you already made them. So you're okay. now standing on the shoulders of giants. Oh, right. This there turned into a pep talk. Not what I was looking for, but thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. It was a really great interview. It's true. The innovations they are making right now are going to have a major influence. And 
they're thinking about things in a, a really great way. I'm really sorry we didn't get to find out any personal information about your <laughs> your history there, though, Dalen. <laughs> For the best. Yeah. Well, you know what? Send in your questions. We'll do a little sidebar. That's right. All right, though. At this point, it is time for us to close the show. But before we do, let's have our good old SCP rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? The dollar store. What? All right. Yes. It's a ridiculous scam. I have major problems. Number one, foremost, it's a big fraud because nothing in there costs a dollar. I went in there. I, I thought it'd be great. I, before dinner, I grab a bunch of junk for the kids and we, they open it pretty much at the restaurant. That's the idea. But I go in there and I said to the guy, I said, but I thought this was a dollar store. And you know what he said? He said, well, that means this, you find stuff in here as that's cost as low as a dollar. So I'll tell you what, the Home Depot might as well be a dollar store. I mean, the quarter store, because I could buy myself a stick of gum anywhere, my man. I know. You could go to the grocery store, find something for a dollar. Once upon a time, I think I remember growing up and once upon a time, I think they did have a lot of things for a dollar, but it's fair. It's a good point. It's It's an old name. There's inflation. What are they supposed to name it? The used to be a dollar store? No, change the name. (laughs) Do you remember? They had the five and dime. They used to have the five and dime and then clearly that wasn't going to work or everyone was going to go broke. So they changed it to Pathmark or something. I'm just saying dollar store, you need to change your game. The other thing is, all that stuff in there is worth not even a quarter. I might as well just throw my money directly in the garbage. I want to go in there from now on. I want them to have a big trash bag and then say, put your money here. Because I get it, and it's literally trash. I take it. My kids are opening it and throwing it on the ground. I mean, none of it works. It's like a plastic whistle that literally doesn't work. I mean, how, what kind of technology do you need to make a whistle? And how can that fail? I can't answer this question. Yeah, I, there is a lot of junk in this world, and I don't know why do why do we go spend? I like the there's this whole like minimalist movement, you know, get rid of things. Not that I am following that entirely, but instead of getting rid of things necessarily, you just don't buy it if you don't need it. I mean, maybe the dollar store, you can find some cheap razors if you need to buy your razors. Maybe you can find some cheap soap or something if you need to buy some essentials at a lower price. Maybe that's what it's good for. But I mean, if you're buying stuff, little gadgets and gizmos and things for your kids, maybe they can make do with a stick from a plant. You You just shamed me. My rant, I was thinking of it one way. And what you just pretty much explained to me is that I'm going to the dollar store looking for luxury items. (laughs) (laughs) Because my first world life, and I'm I'm going and I'm like, oh, <laughs> let me get something nice here. At the, but you're right. I should be getting sponges. Get I should sponges. be getting Get a Tupperware there, thing. It's useful. Yeah. Oh, well, you know what? This rant was a fail. I feel like a real ass. But I'm still upset about the name because it should not. be what they say it is. It's not a dollar. It's not a it, dollar. It's like it can be a dollar, but that's anything. Let's be honest. Dollar oh, yeah. store change your name. <laughs> All right, everybody. Do you go to the dollar store? Do you go there for luxury items or for your essentials? Let us know and be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. Email us. Let us know what the dollar store's new name should be or give us these other rant ideas at 
info at stemcellpodcast.com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 94 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, everyone.